2: What is up everybody? My name is James D Fiori and you're watching Black My guest today, um I'm really excited about having this man on and there's a bunch of reasons why. He has sold as the intro just told you uh, over 7 million books worldwide. Um, he's Canadian but he was born in the United States but raised in Canada. And um one of the real fascinating things about him that we'll get into is um is his relationship early on as a as a as an up and coming writer um, and his relationships that he had by having the gusto to actually send his stuff to famous writers who were already sort of like veterans of the trade and um and i find that really amazing because uh the rule of thumb is like never send stuff <laughs> to famous writers when you're not famous but he did it and it worked and his name is linwood barkley linwood how are you buddy
1: i'm just great hi to james nice to be here
2: Thank you. That was the one of the thing that like I did my Linwood Barkley deep dive and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I saw a quote from you saying, I did what I, I did what I shouldn't have done and (laughs) sent a manuscript. I think it was to Margaret Lawrence and to Kenneth Millar. And I was like, that is so ballsy, but would you advise any writer these days to, for example, send something to you or someone, you know, that has already made it in the trade?
1: Well I'll start, first of all the, uh, Margaret Lawrence who was a wonderful mentor to me. She that wasn't so that wasn't quite the same because she was a writer in residence at Trent where I was going and she was she was inviting aspiring authors to come and see her and bring stuff to show her. So that so what I did there was not nearly the imposition that I that I did with um, Kenneth Millar who's, who wrote under the name Ross MacDonald and was immensely successful as the author of the Lou Archer novels. And so very, very quickly, what I did there was I had, I wanted to write a thesis at university about the private eye as a kind of iconic character in literature. What I really wanted to focus in on, on Ross McDonald, Lou Archer. So I wrote to him, care of his publishers in New York, got the address for Alfred Knopf, and sent this letter off. And lo and behold, one day I get a letter to, to, to my house from him, handwritten, and um, he pointed me to this article and that article that had been written about him and a Newsweek cover story and so forth and so forth. So now I had his home address, right? And I wrote him back and I said, listen, you can say no and so forth, but I've written a novel and can I send it to you? Which I appreciate now is just really a huge imposition, you know? And he wrote back and he said, sure. Wow. So I said, and that, that was the beginning of a very long correspondence I have on my shelf here. I have just a stack of letters back and forth between us, which culminated when he and his wife, Margaret Miller, also a very noted mystery novelist, were coming to Peterborough. And he called and said, would you like to have dinner with us? So I spent an entire evening with Ross McDonald who and for any other kid just to be like getting a call and saying hey it's it's Wayne Gretzky you want to hang out mm-hmm. and but for me this was I there was nobody on the planet who I was revered more than him and his work and so I spent the whole evening you know they have dinner and shoot the shit and took him to tour of Trent University and so forth so but it was as you say it's it's not the sort of thing and of course today with you know, internet and websites and, and sorts. I mean, you can get 10 requests a day from people saying, can I send you my book? And it was, took a little more effort back in the seventies. You know, you had to write a letter and wait a few weeks and so forth. Yeah. But now someone sends it and says, "Hey, can I send my book to you. I'll, I'll send it in five minutes. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I was going to invite Margaret Atwood on the show, um, to talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, when the Supreme court decision for abortion came out, I think I wanted to have her on the show. And then, when I was like trying to find a way to contact her, the only way you can contact Margaret Outward is if you handwrite a letter, which I think is brilliant in a way because they're yeah. probably the only letters she answers. <laughs> you
1: know, I don't, I can't. I mean, I, I, she and I used to have the same publicist at a different publishing house. So there might have been another way, but, but that's, I mean, that's, I kind of like that policy because it means you really do have to make an effort.
2: Yeah. Um, Stephen Fry is the same way. I sent a letter to him um last year. And um he sent back a note that said, Thanks for your letter. <laughs> <it. There> you <laughs> go. Like, well yeah, thank you. That's, that's quite touching. Yeah, right. Um the I Okay, so here. First of all, here's the book. That your new book is called "Take Your Breath Away." Um, I was telling you off air. I'm going to tell you again because I think it's funny. Um, that when I found out I, I'm going through a separation right now, and when I found out that it was about a man who may have gotten away with killing his wife, I was like, "Okay, I'm hooked. Uh, this is something I want to read." Um, as a as a dark humor guy, um, when I read, it's not re- as
1: a manual. Just so you know.
2: You know? Yeah, just, no, I know. I I have my copy here. I'm I'm going through it. I have Post-it notes at the key parts. Um. But the, when I was, I was distracted by reading some of the reviews, not just from this, but like, is it true that people still get mad at you, even though you, you write in this genre and you do it very well, you sold over 7 million books at the profanity, people get mad at swearing?
1: Really? Well, it's funny you should mention that because I used to get those kinds of letters or emails pretty regularly. Where people were upset with the language, you know, the use of four-letter words in the book. But I have to say that over the last few years, I've seen far fewer of them. Maybe even those people who were were used to be offended by that have just given up. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they just know it's a lost cause. But I just I don't get those very often. But I used to get them. And but I, my I, this was not original with me, but Mark Billingham, who's a crime writer, whose work I really like, and I'm going to get the interview him about that. Motive Crime Fiction Festival in Toronto the first week, weekend of June. He would say his, his reply, his response to that is so you're okay with being entertained by depictions of murder and cruelty and suffering and all of those terrible terrible I think, things. I
2: think you used dismemberment as your uh, yeah, example. Dismemberment, yeah, dismemberment.
1: But but you want it with nice words. You know, maybe this is the wrong genre for you.
2: Yeah, yeah, you think?
1: Unless you're watching Murder She Wrote and Jessica Fletcher or something, it's you know it's mm-hmm. it's gonna get it's gonna get edgy.
2: Yeah. Um. Listen, I w- I want to fanboy out here a little bit because um, you know I, I'm not I'm not a novelist. Um, I am I'm, I'm a writer. I, I I do nonfiction. I have a book deal right now. I'm writing with Mike Bullard, but I I look at seven million copies sold, and I'm just I mean is there a moment like when you, when your success first starts, is there a moment where you're like, do you just have to keep your head down and keep working, keep plowing ahead? Or do you allow yourself ever to get lost in the idea that fuck like millions of people are reading my shit. Like, this is amazing. Like, how do you balance that?
3: Um, well,
1: I, I have a, a large humbling network in place in the form of my family. If I ever think i get full of myself, think remind me, you know, no. Um, and I, and it's and it really is, it, it, in fact, rather than sort of, you know, think, oh my God, isn't this great to sell this many books, what it, it also can, the flip side of that is it's it creates more pressure, kind of a good kind of pressure, but it creates more pressure that, so if you're selling this many books, you can't go out into the market with a book that's terrible or just sort of, you know, half-assed or whatever. It has to be good because you're competing against yourself, you're competing against the books that you've done. And so... You can't coast, you know, you really need to, to try to try to maintain the standard that you've set for yourself. So um, I do think occasionally it still seems a little unbelievable because, you know, the book that broke me out was a book called No Time for Goodbye, which was my fifth novel. And that book kind of went supernova. And I certainly didn't had no idea that that was going to happen. Uh, that book is sold. That book alone is sold probably two and a half, three million copies. But but when I handed that book into my publishers, I just, I have no idea. I don't think they did either. It just was something about it that clicked, particularly in the UK, because that was the single best-selling novel of the year in, in 2008 in the UK. So that kind of shot me out of the canon. But ever since then, the pressure's on. Like, you got to write a book that was better than that one.
2: Yeah. Um, and you're in a field, uh, like the, the genre that you write in is really competitive. Like, it's not, yeah. you know... And yet, it's a really
1: nice community. Like, like we're all—you know—us are all good friends, and give each other, you know, blurbs and you know, email or, or tweet about each other's books and so forth. Yeah, and I, was, I, was, I think you might have—you might have overstated it in your intro that the, the best crime writer in the world. I think there's. A I was, whole, I was uh, trying to be nice. <laughs> a lot of them who I would hold at a higher level and who sell a lot more than I do, and so, uh, but I'm glad to, you know, even be. Someone in that company,
2: does that give you something to shoot for in a sense? Because like it not consi- being like humility itself is a good starting point for um, you know evolving even further as a writer, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I guess I just you know my I expect when every book comes out, my fear is that it's going to tank. That even if the other ones have done well and have a good track record, there's always this fear that new book comes out. And it's, it'll be over, you know, like, yeah, you know what? We've had enough of reading him and we're going to go read somebody else. So, so it's, it's, uh, overconfidence is not a problem. I'm, I'm more worried about, can we, can we keep this going?
2: You have a network right now. Um, I also read that includes, um, people like Stephen King, where you guys will like send books that are not published yet to each other to sort of get each other's feedback. Is there ever a time where um, one of you will be like, yeah, it's not really hitting? Like, has that ever happened? Because I can't imagine you guys just giving each other books and it just being like, this is awesome. This is awesome. And that's just what you say to each other all the time because you guys are really good writers, you know?
1: Well, I, and, uh, and we do exchange, you know, advanced copies often. I always will send him an advanced copy of mine. Well, first, I'll email and say, do you want it? He goes, yes, he wants it, you know, and please send it. And in fact, I was I was emailing back and forth with him earlier today, and um, and well, we just you know I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of his books, mm. and you know there and we all have you know Stephen King books that we love and others we don't like as much and so forth, but I think that when you look at his overall output mm-hmm. and how astonishing it is, and also I think that so many writers who would be at his stage of a career a lot of them really do coast. And they just kind of mailed in. And I think some of his best, most ambitious books have been done in the last 10, 11 years, like 1122, or 1123, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know the one, the Kennedy one. I always get the numbers mixed up. 1122, Mm -hmm. 63. I thought that The Institute was just a fantastic novel. You know, Sider, I really love. So he's not coasting. He's still turning out this really ambitious material. And so I'm a huge fan of his, and he professes to be a fan of mine and, you know we did an event kind of like this uh virtual back in september and it wasn't it was a kind of interviewing each other and he started bringing up plot points in my latest book like how did you do this how did you do that and i thought he's really reading the stuff like he knows it right. and, but uh if you told me when i was sitting in a movie theater with my wife watching carrie when it first came out if you told me that I would have any sort of connection with him. That's that guy later. I would have said that seems unlikely. He
2: He's part of the cultural fabric of the United States of America. Like yes. he's, um, I didn't know what mailbox baseball was until I saw stand by me and then went back and read the body, which it was based on. Yep. And I was like, and now, now every, I live in the country now, every dude, Stephen King is on my mind every single day. Cause whenever I see one of those mailboxes, the, only thought that comes to my mind is mailbox baseball from stand by
1: right. me well, look at all the things that he has created that are are completely ingrained in our culture now whether it's you know cujo the the rabbit dog or pennywise the clown or you know there's there are just there are so many you know carry pet mm-hmm. cemetery all of these these things that are um have become completely ingrained in our culture all of these things from just one guy
2: yeah Yeah. Um even the character name in um Dead Zone, John Smith, was I it for me, what it felt like is like that character felt like a nobody. So you just give him the the most common name of all time. Like he's just he's just so talented. To have someone like that um also be your peer and to tell you and to praise your work, I mean that's like Nolan Ryan calling up some somebody and saying, Can can you give me advice on how you do the two seam fastball? Because
1: (laughs) he's not looking for advice. You don't need advice from me. But Right. But or, I just, I continually be amazed by his his work.
2: James Patterson. I work at a library um, a couple of days a week. And I joke now that James Patterson writes so many books that his pen name is Danielle Steele. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, is he? I'm not trying to trash anyone. I'm just trying to figure out how the business works sometimes because they, he churns out so many books. And I'm just wondering, like, You know, and then he has these co-writes and I'm like, how does the business work behind the scene? Like some of those co-writes, are they like the bulk of the work is done by the lesser known name and then James Patterson name put there to sell books? Like again, I'm not trying to try. Yeah, go
1: ahead. I'm friends with one of his former co-writers and my understanding of how that works is he comes up with an outline of the story Mm -hmm. and then he gives it to the co-writer to actually write it out, make the whole thing out. And then it goes back to Patterson. And he goes through it and makes fixes and so forth. And that, I'm told that's the process. Maybe I, it's changed. So, I mean, somebody asked him once, well, isn't writing the long part, you know, the whole, the text, isn't that the real big part of the job? And his response was, well, that's why I get somebody else to do it. (laughs) So, but it's, you know, it's clearly works. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a system that's working for him and you know, and and so it's, what can I say? I mean, he's uh, he's a mega bestseller, but um, and he has a re- he has a huge audience. But that's my understanding of how it works.
2: Um, can you describe what we're looking at in this picture?
1: That is me at about I'm going to say age eleven or twelve. Think of twelve, and that's at uh uh. Trader Park and Cottage Resort, south of Bob Cajun in the Kawarthas, called Green Acres. So in 1966, my parents bought this Cottage Resort Trader Park when I was 11. And uh, my dad was a very successful, or had been a very successful um, automotive illustrator. He worked in advertising. He was a commercial artist, and he would draw these beautiful airbrushed renderings of, of cars. In, and these ads would appear in life, luxury, post. And as the 60s progressed, um, photography killed what my father did and there was no demand for it anymore. So the parents decided to switch gears and they bought this cottage store in Trader Park. And so, which was kind of a huge lark for me up until the age of 16, when my father got uh, died of lung cancer or cancer that had spread everywhere from lung cancer. And I essentially took over running that camp. Um, You know, I kind of grew up overnight. I mean, my mom managed it, but I was looking after all the sort of operation of it. And, and, and it was well, to some degree, kind of looking after a brother who was 11 years older, who was, had suffered from schizophrenia. So I kind of just grew up overnight, but, that was but you know, I used to ride that tractor. I usually had 10 acres of grass to cut. And and having a John Deere riding tractor is just one of the greatest things in the world if you want to be a writer, because you just sit on a thing and you dream up plots and and think of stories you could write and so forth. And I was like when I was 14, 15, I thought I was so cool. I would wash and wax the tractor because I was sure that the ladies would be really impressed with it. <laughs> Were you looking over
2: your shoulder to see if they were looking at you?
1: Look at that that green gleaming hood on that lawn tractor. Is that guy or what?
2: Every time I smell grass, I think of you, Linwood. That's
1: right. Yeah. That's right. That's the thing I miss. I miss not having a a property with big problems. I can just have a John Deere tractor again. You know, that was so much fun.
2: Yeah, like Forrest Gump. You know, he didn't even have to
3: do it, he had a lot of money, he just kept doing it. Um, what is the difference
2: then between because that I, I'm a big nostalgia fiend. like I I, I I cling to it. i I sometimes I think I manufacture it. it. Um when you're at the beginning of your career as a writer versus now, what do you tap into? Is it the same thing in order to find um the inspiration to keep writing for the next book?
1: I'm always, you know, I'm always looking for a great hook. I need. I need, I I figure there are these ideas floating around out there in the ether and I just need to grab one of them or have one of them just land on me that I think, okay, that is going to, that can work and be this year's book. Now I need to start writing a new novel, probably by October, somewhere in there. Like next, the novel that would come out next year is written (laughs) and delivered that book, but I haven't done the edits on yet. So I need this one great idea year. And, and, um, you know, it's like, and I kind of, if I, if I actually consciously make an effort to try to think of what that book would be, i probably won't, nothing will happen. You just have to kind of wait for the moment. Like, I did a book a few years ago called Elevator Pitch, which was about a very different kind of serial killer in Manhattan who was killing people by sabotaging elevators, and they just, you know, kind of. Wow. And I had just been listening to the radio, uh, and CBC was talking about how with the pace of condo construction by the by the lake in Toronto, these huge high rises, that they didn't have enough elevator inspectors to keep up with the pace of construction. There hadn't been a problem, but they just were short of inspectors. And, excuse me. And the idea was just there. Like I just heard that note, what if you had a guy who was sabotaging elevators to kill people? And, and so sometimes it's just waiting for some sort of event that triggers a different idea and and i just hope and pray that there'll be one a year somehow
2: yeah i mean and inspiration's a weird thing i have this weird theory that there is a we're at the beginning of a renaissance in everything that's art related because of the two year pandemic where most of us were kind of stuck inside uh, i know a lot of people that um that put out that that had started to work on basically their life's work like that whatever they were passionate about there was all these passion projects there was all these people that had free time to write and to paint and i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that because it 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 seems like we almost needed the renaissance too like you know there's been a lot of stagnation um in the last you know 15 years with uh, you know with technology sort of like taking over the mind space of people and i just think this pandemic i could be totally wrong but i feel like in the next 2 years we're going to see the result of what this pandemic did to people who were creative i know it's an out of left field question but i was just wondering what your thoughts were
1: well it's an interesting question i i i have never thought of it quite in terms of creativity i think that we're feeling the effects in a million other ways um whether it's supply chain and how we you know, all these sort of things but in terms of creativity if speaking personally i mean writing is a very isolating profession to begin with i mean i don't I don't play in a club, so, you know, it's not like I couldn't do a gig for two years. I could still mm-hmm. i like, have written two dolls during the pandemic. So what I missed was the, the the actually going out on tour and actually meeting people face-to-face and signing their books. That was all gone. Um, but I think that... Uh, but whether there will be a kind of creative resurgence, I don't know. That's... I, I don't have a, a lot of thought on that. I think that... I think in some ways a lot of people became more creative during the pandemic because they were looking for outlets or, t- or, or, or they now have time to do things that they didn't before. And so they started, you know, they couldn't, go, they couldn't do their regular work. So they, so they created, whether it was sculpture or they wrote or there was music and so forth, whether we'll see something happening. I don't know. I mean, I'd have been just perfectly fine if it, if it had not happened. I have been okay. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. think that I can't, I mean, I'm trying to think if there are any real bonuses that have come out of this. Um, I know that except for, I know, except for my my people at the bank tell me that we are now five years ahead of where the banks wanted us to be in terms of doing our own banking and depositing checks with a camera and all that stuff. We're just light years ahead of where they thought they would ever get us. Right. But I mean, it just means that there's more stuff we have to do ourselves that others don't
2: do for us anymore yeah i mean out of necessity right and and it's the hungry artists, really that i guess i'm thinking of you know like the musicians yeah. are come to come to mind the, there's no better music usually that a musician will put out uh than the music they put out when they're still starving and that's why the sophomore yeah. jinx happens right um you know that you have your whole life to write your first album and then you have to write your second album and you have six months <laughs>
1: Right. Uh, That's um, a, a whole other topic about about people who have a, a breakout hit novel or other, you know a movie or something, and then you have to do a second one, and there's this kind of paralysis for some people. It's like, well, this big first one was a hit. Now, what on earth am I going to do? And and um, I was sort of lucky in that regard, in that my the book that became a massive hit for me was actually my fifth and. By the time it came out, I had written the sixth one already, so I kind of right. was able to avoid that. But but that can be real really paralyzing. I have a friend who like it must be almost ten years now, who wrote this legal thriller that was just fantastic, and it did really well, and 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 he he still hasn't done a book since. Hmm. It's been ten years, and I think that. Maybe that's what happened, you know. It, uh, some people just get like, well, I can't repeat that, so I'm not going to try."
2: Even Hemingway's wasn't his the first book he wrote, "Old Man and the Sea," but it was like the fourth one that he published or something like that. That I don't like, know. Yeah, so that, I mean, it, it happens. I think that when people hit it out of the park the first time, that's a tough one to try to like.
1: Well, yeah, like think of um, was it Alice Sebold, "The Lovely Bones"? That was that was came out in 2000 and three, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that was just an immense success. And then she had a second novel that didn't do so much. I mean, I don't, as far as I know, we haven't heard a lot. Haven't had, had, she hasn't had a, a big hit since. And, and but that's true of a great many people and they're probably their subsequent work. Maybe everybody's good, but it's just that the people want, well, I really love that one, but I don't want to take a chance on reading another one by the not
2: yeah, well, it's the Salinger thing, right? Like, you know, you yeah. put out an amazing book, your first go around, and then, I mean, he disappeared in a sense. But yeah. when he died, they found all of the stuff that he had written, and apparently it was pretty marvelous th- stuff. Like, he did it, yeah. yeah, the the whole genealogy of the characters inside Catcher in the Rye and everything like that. So, I don't know, it's just interesting. But you started out, um, you worked for the Toronto Star for like a decade or so, didn't you?
1: Well, longer than that. I was at the Toronto Star for 26 years. Oh wow! I went to the Star in 1981. Um, I was I went in trying to get a reporting job, but they didn't have anything. They said, "Well, we're really short of copy editors, and and do you have a lot of editing experience?" And I said, uh, "Sure," <laughs> yeah, which I did not. I had some, but from another paper, but not really very much. So they hired me to work on the desk and it turned out I was pretty good at it. I was a good, co- a good editor. So I was an editor in various, I was, I was hired as a copy editor and in under a year I was a assistant city editor. I was the news editor. I was um, chief copy editor. I was the life section editor. I did all those jobs um, until, uh, for the first 12 years that I was at the star and then a column gig became available, uh, allegedly a humor column, and I applied <laughs> and I got it. And so I and so for the next thirteen or so or more years, I was I wrote three columns a week for the paper. And I always say allegedly um, because and if you write a really bad sports column, it's still obviously a, a, a sports column. But if you write a really bad humor column and nobody laughs, is it really a humor column? And like, so. <laughs> So I always felt I needed to qualify it because when you write humor in a newspaper, hmm. uh, unless there's a little label that says satire or something, there will always be someone who thinks it's true, even if it's, even if it's so obviously is not. Yeah. And and um, so you know you had to start. That was always a bit fun. I mean, one time I wrote um, very quickly now uh, years before it was still up there circling the globe. I wrote about. Uh, tongue-in-cheek places to send your kids for summer camp, and I suggested you send your kid to the Mir space station camp, the Russian satellite. Uh, but if you do, uh, dress them warmly because it's very cold in space, and send them with lots of rolls of duct tape because there's holes in the hall, the whole thing's falling apart. <laughs> I swear to God, a guy called me <laughs> the next day and he said you didn't put in a phone number. Now, what do you tell a guy like that? You know?
2: bless his heart i don't I mean, know i wouldn't want to
1: be his kid like guess where you're going you know yeah, right? yeah.
2: good luck getting him there um <laughs> did you work with linda hurst when uh, you were at Star? yes
1: i did some yeah i did work with him she's amazing um, she's an amazing writer amazing guest.
2: She, she was great I, I became sort of friends with her for a while and then she sort of went off the radar uh, a little bit and but i i sort of retraced a lot of her work she was really good. Like she, yeah. she had an ability to sort of like paint a picture. She danced with Prince Charles once and wrote a column about it. And it was just like, it wasn't like overly, Oh, he was so amazing. It was like, I was nervous. Can he feel my sweat? Like she was so human the way that she wrote. I really enjoyed her. Yes, but um... she, was, uh,
1: she was quite unique. Um, she was a very, very excellent writer and uh, a really great perspective on things. So yeah, you're right.
2: To... Uh, yeah, the Toronto Star newsroom. That, that, uh, Christy Blatchford used to tell me that I was born two decades too late because I'm 45, and at the time, I was in my late 20s, and I just wanted to work at the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail, and that's all I wanted. No, she, yeah.
1: I, I mean, I, you know, especially when I was on the news desk, not the city desk, and worked right in the heart of the newsroom and worked under the deadlines to put the paper. Like, I mean, I would come in for years. I would come in at like 3 in the afternoon, and we would build a paper. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have all these stories, we'd have all these photographs, and we would think, okay, we're going to do this thing, and we're going to sit down and we make a paper, and then we get half of it done, and a plane would crash, and we'd throw out everything we did, and we'd start again and we'd, with a third of the time or much less. Yeah. And it was next to being able to write a column; it's the most fun I have ever had because you just never knew when you came in at three, it was just going to be a normal day, or if all hell was going to break loose, and. It was, and to be in the center of that. I mean, and those times really are gone. You know, it's not just like that. The newsrooms are very short staffed. We always had an army of people to do things. And if there was a major event, you would you would, we would, I would call it carpet bombing an event. We would carpet bomb an event with all the photographers and reporters and just go nuts. And we would take, we would call down and say, we're going to take eight clear ad free pages to do this story. And we would. And it was just—it was so much fun, you know. Was
2: it the manual layout process that made it kind of exciting? Well, that was I that, mean, that didn't make it annoying. But well, <laughs> I, do, I mean,
1: I, I, I mean, in my time of start, I laid out with a pencil and a ruler thousands of newspaper pages, wrote and and then cleared and wrote thousands of headlines and pick pictures and size them and, and so forth all done. And then you roll it up in the tube and it goes to the pneumatic tube and goes out to composing. And then, you know, you're running around. You're going, it's just, it's, it was all like that, but it was the fact that where we produced the paper and drew the pages was also the same room where the reporters were and where people were shouting each other, you know, the fire's here, go here and no and get on the phone No go there. So you were in you know, that it was just all happening right in this big room. And ghosts. that's like
2: a true ecosystem of news. Yep. It was just
1: so much fun. I mean, you, everyone saw, you see a movie like there's so many terrible movies, about newspapers, but you watch a movie like all the presidents men mm-hmm. or um, spotlight and, and watch the newsrooms and how they really working. I think that's what, or the, or the post, the more recent one, the Spielberg movie, that's yeah. what big, really big city newsrooms are really like. And they're amazing. And just, that's just a favorite line in The Post with Tom Hanks playing Bill Bradley, Ben Bradley. Yeah, Ben Bradley. And, and someone comes in with all these documents they've acquired. And he says, uh, give it to so-and-so, let him sort it out. And he's trying to go back into his office and he sort of puts his finger on the desk and he goes, what fun. And I think that's what it's like.
2: I know what it's like. I, like, I, I, I Christy Blatchford was right. She, she, I was born two decades too late. I'm so idealistic about the news because when I was a kid, the first news clip I remember seeing was a historical news clip. I think it was Walter Cronkite talking about uh, JFK yep. and, and the way that it was explained to me by my dad was, uh, you know, uh, about how news worked and how it's different now. And this is even before the internet and it was still different to him. Um, and then technology came and then they started cutting staff, uh, in investigative news and in foreign bureaus and all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't think we'd start talking about this, but I, I'm just going to ask you anyways, is news fixable given technology, given how we receive it?
1: Well, I think that what we have really lost is, um, local coverage, in-depth local coverage, because, what happened with certainly with newspaper chains and so forth you had um, you started to get all this consolidation and so you know it used to be if you had, you'd have a you'd have a movie you'd have a movie reviewer in Winnipeg and a movie reviewer in London Ontario and somebody reviewed movies in Toronto and all these and 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 whoever the wherever these people were they brought their own kind of sensibility to reviewing that movie then you get a chain and you think, you know what We don't need all those movie reviewers. reviewers. We need one. And we're going to put that review in every single paper from Vancouver out to St. John's. So you start to lose local respect. Even worse with like auto like having a reporter in Ottawa covering politics. Well, a reporter who covers politics, who's from Toronto, has a very different audience and different, you know, questions to ask of a politician of a prime minister. Than one in Alberta or whatever, but then they think, ah, we just need one reporter in Ottawa. I can cover it for the whole country. So you start losing all this local local <laughs> angle and local interest. And not only that, if you start cutting stuff, you just don't even have people who are covering things in your own community. And TV news isn't going to do it. They they just they just they like a you know a skipping stone over the surface. You know, here's a car accident. Here's yeah. a fire. <laughs> Bloody dog, here's the weather. See you later. So you're not getting that kind of, uh, in-depth coverage. And I think that's a serious problem. Um, and I don't know what the fix for it is because I think a lot of newspapers have been trying to find a different business model that really works and they're struggling. I think, yeah.
2: I think do you think COVID exposed the news? Not that it wasn't already kind of seen as watered down and, and failing in a lot of ways, but did COVID ex- sort of expose that, um, shorthandedness? Of the kind of, I think the real impact
1: of COVID in, in some way on newspapers and that is because everyone started working remotely from mm-hmm. home. Like the Toronto Star, well, you know, they started being able to, to do the entire newspaper with all of their editors and everybody. None of them, virtually none of them in the Toronto Star building. And they were all around and they all doing it and, and doing the composition, the composing, you know, the pages, the you know, layout on the screen and sending it places which was amazing. You know, technologically, it was amazing. And what it meant was then lots of newspapers thought, geez, we don't really need this newsroom or this building, let's just get rid of it Hmm. and we can save a fortune there. And that's unfortunate because, you know, yes, it's great you can work from home, but there's something about having a bunch of people physically together in an environment. You know, somebody is working on a story, is on the phone and says something to somebody and somebody over here hears it and says, wait a minute, I'm working on another angle to that story. And then they can talk and it can sort of, you know. So I think that that's a shame, but I, I certainly think that COVID was not an opportunity to make journalism better, but was became an opportunity for news organizations to find new ways to, to save money and cut back on what they do.
2: Did you have any like, um, like during COVID and we saw these protesters in Ottawa and everything, were you like, do you stay out of that kind of political discussion or, or did you have like, cause you live in Randy Hillier's writing, don't you? in Prince Edward County. Ooh,
1: well, see, I don't think he covers Prince Edward County. He doesn't. Oh, okay. others, thank God. <laughs> but I mean, when we're out there, but I mean, I live right in downtown Toronto and yeah. I've never been afraid to speak my mind. I mean, I certainly did when I had a column. I mean, now I have my outlet uh, is Twitter. And so if something really, pisses me off or i have some sort of snarky comment to make about something i express it in 280 characters instead of 600 words which tells me that the columns were overwritten yeah. um but yeah, i they just, really
2: I, twitter really did a good job of teaching writers how to trim the fat
1: yeah yeah it really teach you how to edit make every word count it's like screenwriting but uh, but so every once in a while you'll you'll express some political opinion and someone says you know, you shouldn't should do that. We just, you know, we'd like your books, but we don't want to hear from you about that. And I think, yeah, this is why I became a writer, to keep my thoughts to myself. <laughs> right. Um, so sometimes you piss people off and other, but I just can't worry about it.
2: Yeah. Um, are, you, um, are, you, are you now back at it the way that your schedule w- was intended to be? Are you traveling? Are you, you know?
1: Not quite yet. Um, I'm actually doing... Two in person events this, uh, over the next couple of weeks. The first in person events that I have done since the pandemic began. I'm doing uh, an event on Friday of this week for the uh, Belleville Mayor's Arts Festival, I'm going to be there, and also on the first weekend of June, there is uh, a crime fiction conference put out by the Toronto International Festival of Authors. It's a crime fiction conference called Motive. Hmm. And they've attracted a lot of you know big name crime writers to come, and I'm going to be in person for two things. I'm going to interview Mark Billingham, one of my favorite writers, and then I'm doing a solo event on um, Sunday, June 5th. Uh, to, it's at Harborfront in that area there. But and that it's would nice be to back to that, you
2: know? and that would be for Take Your Breath Away, yeah.
1: But it'll be for that. Yeah, I'll be I'll be able to physically actually in person autograph copies of that. Thing.
2: Oh, nice. Um, th- yeah, the, the the cool thing. um, you know watching because uh, i saw a bit of your schedule is the you know the excitement of having a new book out um it must be one thing do you because when i when i went to go look at reviews and stuff um i look at i look at reader reviews more than i look at critic reviews just because i think it's you're, you're at the you know the the home base of of the people that actually buy your book uh, the book came out when just like two days ago and it came it was out a
1: like a week ago
2: today a week ago sorry um and there's and and literally Goodreads and two other sites and there's like thousands of reviews already.
1: Well, it came out. It did come out in the UK on February third. So oh, okay, that's where. So bulk of reviews are what people who've had a chance to read it over the last you know three months or so.
2: And the British really love your stuff. Like that you sell like most of your books in the UK. I think don't you?
1: Yeah. Well, I I, I do very very well in the UK and Ireland. Um, uh, we've sold. Millions of copies over there. I do well. The place I do very, very well is France in translation. They made a TV series out of one of my books in France. Um, so France is really good. Um, and of course, Canada is is fabulous for me. And the US just does very well. well. So there's lots of other countries that, you know, I get, sometimes they get packaged to the door. I'll get, you know, a, a translation edition of one of my books and I don't even know what it is because even my name is 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 in some sort of, I just don't understand, I don't know what it is. But.
2: Yeah. Um. Well, listen, I know that you were born in Connecticut but uh, and moved to Canada when you were like four yeah. and raised here. I don't know if you're a dual citizen or not, but I consider oh, yeah. you to be a native son of Canada. Like I just, you know, I...
1: I feel, I, I, so, I feel sort of 80% Canadian. I mean, I've lived here since, this say, since just before I turned four. And I am a dual. I've got two passports. So,
2: well, I am. Um, I, listen, I, I know this sounds ridiculous because you're very accomplished, um but I am proud of you as a Canadian. Like, I like that there are Canadian writers like yourself who are making not just a splash worldwide, but are like considered top tier writers uh, in your genre or just overall. And uh, I know you have to go, so we're going to let you go now. But yeah, I just wanted to let you know that because, um, you know, you you inspire me to 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 write better. You know, and I'm well, gonna totally I, send you my books. I don't I don't care. It worked for you, right? So I, I'm gonna follow in your footsteps, and we'll see how it goes. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Well, I really I appreciate the kind words. I really do, and I nice to have a chance to talk to you today. And I understand you had a couple of my friends on, not longer. ago. you. Didn't you have Gail Harvey and Katie Boland on?
2: Yep. Um. I'm friends with uh, with Mike Boland, uh, Gail's son. Yeah. And then I met Katie and and Gail through uh, through them. I, yeah, you guys. You know, funny story. I mean, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell the story, or not, but uh, I was dealing with. Uh, I had a children's uh, sh- children's television show idea that I sent to somebody, and they sent me the contract back, and I was like, "Gail, can you look at this contract? It doesn't feel right." And she sent me a sample contract that was her contract with you, okay. um, to make uh, one of your books into like a TV movie or something like that. Really?
1: Gail, Gail and I go way back. Gail and I worked together at the Toronto Star. She was on the mm-hmm. photo desk and I was on the news desk. And then we reconnected years later in Prince Edward County. And, she's, and Gail by then had a, a, quite a, you know, a record of, of directing TV and film and documentaries. And she said, have yeah, some book that nobody's optioned that would make a good movie. I said, yeah, I never saw it coming. I gave it to her. And she said, would you be willing to write a script on spec for this while I look for money? and so i did and uh we got that film made it's so far it hasn't gotten out of canada but it's it's a nice little movie they never saw it coming we've got eric roberts is in it and katie's in it and emily hampshire stars in it.
2: katie's like she's gonna go somewhere i, I feel like she, there's gonna be a, a role for her and she's just gonna go into the stratosphere because she's super talented yeah. and she's you know Very she's tough. a good writer too um but listen Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Good luck on the rest of your tour. I'm sure this is going to be another bestseller if it isn't already. And um, we thank you for having you. So Linwood Barkley, thank you very much, sir.
1: It was a pleasure. Take care, James. You too.
2: That was fun. Um, I told him before we went on air that I hadn't read his entire book yet because I was like, I didn't want to get into the situation where it was like, so did you read the book? And I'd have to be like, I I, I started reading it, but I didn't finish. But um, there's so much to talk about with him because he's just one of these guys that – Yeah, he's so well-rounded and he's got such a cool story and um and he's down to earth kind of accessible too he came on he came on the podcast so um linwood barkley thank you very much i hope everyone enjoyed it listen tomorrow at 6 30 we have jackie delaney and she is going to talk about her work experience with q107's john Derringer, and uh we're going to sort of unpack that that is a story that's still developing um and and you know we're just going to hear her out and and see what she has to say about that and then um, on Thursday, um, Dave, I, I laugh every time because um, it, it doesn't seem like a guess that I would have, but Dave Mercer, uh, the king of fishing. And the reason why he's on the show, not that fishing is like not compelling, um, but we went to elementary school together. And my first memory of him is he, him picking up some kid and suplexing him and then pretending he was Hulk Hogan, but for some reason putting on a fake Scottish accent. So I'm going to ask him about that. And um and yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna see you tomorrow at six thirty, and until then, thanks for watching. Black black
0: black black board black 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 book black 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 Thank you for having me. Look, journalism is dead. We'd all rather take selfies now than learn to comprehend. Look, I despise those colorblind, those self-absorbed reporters, those whores who suck the content for all the media hoarders. Those producers, man, they tap dance for the conglomerate's quarters. They exploit polarization, and it's done through gender, race, and borders. And meanwhile, they sell a sphere, meds, and weapons every hour. Leading bleeding screeds of misdeeds, but shit, none involving power. Those outlets, they insist they don't exist for shit clicks. Fuck man, them pricks, they diss this writer like I was on some mysterious hit list. And the cable news, that's the villain. And I don't want to be mainstream. That's where fake dreams hit snakes and devils all up on the end scene. Know what I mean? A leg up into the armpit of all that corruption? Shit, this relationship, I think it's destined for a mutual destruction. Terror. Mayhem. Nah, I know. I'll cool it with them, Jays. But you better send your fucking eagle and meet the talons of this goddamn osprey. Why? i've been blackballed before now i have to be my main source looking out my front door cause i've been blackballed but now i am older i know i have to keep on moving forward never look over my shoulder we live inside a landscape where editors are predators And writers get shelved and never properly mentored Never cease to increase the pressure of the mighty pen's releases I defeat your fucking arsenal with a single chess piece Bless me, the non-believer Fuck commies and libertarians and conservatives Liberals, anarchists and presbyterians Fuck left-wingers, right-wingers, throat-singers, salesmen The hats you got rocked by that mentally impaired kid I hate all of you, find the button, press play Abort the next generation, spare us from the next wave And let's not blur the lines of yesterday Just vibrate to your streetwise psilocybin sensei It's true though, whether it's Trump or Justin Trude New clothes for those who last straight face. Then kudos to faith-based race Betas, you guilty Shameful haters Pull the plug, across crossfader is filthy You milk these new breeds of dummies Who promote racism and then cry to their mummies MAGA woke folks fight to a mutual death And no one's left to foster divisions After the last breath Now fucking die already Seriously Oh but wait, one more thing Bring your newspapers In case we all run out of confetti I've been blackballed Before now i have to be my main source looking out my front door cause i've been blackballed but now i am older i know i have to keep on moving forward never look over my shoulder
1: Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.
3: I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.